I'd like to begin uh, this evening's talk with a brief overall exploration of the paramis, and then move towards looking more deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this very beautiful and essential quality of the heart, quality of the mind. The paramis, the forces of purity within the mind, the accumulated force of purity within the heart, the mind. Every mind moment that's clear, that's free of greed, that's free of hatred, free of delusion, has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. Each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our own mind, within our own heart. One of the roots of the Pali word parami conveys a sense of supreme quality. And in Sanskrit, the word is paramita, which means going towards something, going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. And perfection is often the word that is used as a translation of the word paramis. There are two illuminating etymologies regarding the word, this word for, for, for perfection, parami. The first is regarding param, which indicates carrying one across to the further shore. And the second etymology is related to parama, which implies the importance in formulating the purpose of one's life. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis developed to be developed. In some Buddhist traditions, there are only six paramis that are spoken of. And personally, I've found uh, the clarity that's available within the breadth and the detail of the ten paramis to be really quite helpful in my own practice and in my own understanding. So I'd like to just list the ten paramis in Pali first and then the English word. The first is dana, generosity. Sila, virtue or ethical behavior. Nekama, renunciation. Panya, wisdom. Virya, energy or effort. Kanti, patience. Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, or resolution, or determination. Metta, loving-kindness. And upeka, equanimity. As all of these qualities grow, strengthen, and mature within us, the accumulation of the Factors are the qualities of non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience. The qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue. 
And the qualities or factors of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort or energy, resolve, and equanimity. As all of these qualities grow and strengthen and mature within us, the paramis become a very forceful, very forceful uh, energy within us. And they result in many, many forms of happiness, contentment, and a deep sense of well-being. In relationship to the most basic worldly sensual pleasures, all the way through to the highest, most refined happiness of the enlightened heart, of the enlightened mind. The development and the growth and the maturation of these perfections, these forces of heart, of mind, help to counter the forces that cause human beings such great suffering. Everything happens, everything occurs because of particular causes. Nothing occurs accidentally. The practice that leads towards developing these qualities in our heart and mind aren't to be undervalued, not to be scoffed at or thought of as not really so important, thought of as not really the real practice. This aspect of training the heart, of training the mind, is an essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of our practice. An essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of liberating the mind, liberating the heart. As these qualities grow and deepen, as they're perfected, They're incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to uh, conduct or related to the purity of action, our way of being in the world. And these are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort or energy in meditation practice we're specifically speaking of, truthfulness, and resolve, the resolve to practice. The second aspect being the paramis related to the purity of understanding, of insight, both in its ordinary, everyday, worldly aspect and in the understanding, the the insight of the very deepest liberating kind, the wisdom of the absolute truth of the nature of all things. With these paramis being, of course, panya, wisdom, patience, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And, of course, all of the paramis are interrelated, And so bring each other to light over and over and over again. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, of the heart, of a Buddha. The development of the forces of purity in the heart and mind are really the foundation for the attainment of liberation. This attainment of freedom, to whatever degree, is in part the perfectly natural result of the development of these strong powers of purity in the heart and the mind. We could say that the perfection, the attainment of the paramis, is the fulfillment of the cause to gain the Dhamma. And, of course, the paramis are also 
to be practiced and to be developed for the benefit of one's family, one's friends and one's community, and for the benefit of the world. Vipassana practice itself, in its process, is the practice and process of purification. Samatha, or concentration practice, vipassana, insight practice, and other specific practices, such as the Brahmaviharas, are often called the path of purification. Parami are those who do wholesome deeds with a very genuine and pure motivation to help others and to help themselves, as in practicing the Dhamma to gain liberation. And we move towards this little by little by little through our practice. Traditionally, the practice and the development and gaining the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. And so now moving to some exploration of the parami of generosity and beginning with a story. Some years ago, when I was uh, teaching over at the RC, Insight Meditation Society Retreat Center, RC as it's now called, there were times when I would uh, go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, which isn't very far from here. And I would go there to pay a visit to my friend, Venerable Mahagosananda. And some of you may know of him, or at least know of him, know him or maybe know of him. His name, Mahagosananda, translates as Maha, which means great, and Gosananda, which translates as the sound of bliss. Maha, as he was fondly called, was from Cambodia and is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. And he's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and the villages and the refugee camps during the Vietnam War. Maha died a few years ago now at approximately 94 years old. He'd been a monk for 80 years since he was 14 years old. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, a being with a truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, uh, a sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. And we didn't know each other very well, and we hadn't seen each other for over a year. So I didn't know if he would remember me. Being such an old man, uh, there were uh, a number of things that he didn't remember anymore. So I recalled to him the last time that we had met, and I asked him if he remembered me. And he responded by saying, Oh, yes, I remember your nose. And I burst out laughing. And I said, well, it must be quite a nose. (laughs) And he said to me very directly and very sweetly, it's a good nose. (laughs) During a three-month retreat 
that I was teaching at IMS, not too long after the Crestone retreat with uh, Mahagosananda, I visited Venerable at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was uh, going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who actually used to call me Mum. And at one point I asked him um, why he called me Mum, when in fact he was so much older than I. And he responded by saying, we have all been each other's mother at some point. And so you're Mum. So that day, mom and grandfather sat and drank tea and laughed a little bit, talked a little bit of history about his life, talked about the three-month retreat that I was teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which was Venerable's favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart and the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered in simply being. I found it quite amazing and surprising that when I left him, and then afterwards, my heart felt like it filled up my whole body, my whole being, actually, and then outward. And an experience that would always continue on beyond our time of being together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived at the temple with Maha were filling the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar. And they were to take back to the uh, three-month yogis at IMS. They wanted to offer gifts, gifts of support, because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we're all sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a a fairly recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that displays a number of paramis, in particular generosity, along with virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular telling of this ancient legend is adapted uh, from the tale as told by Rafe Martin. It said that many maha kalpas and world cycles ago, Before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amaravati in India. And he was going to offer an evening of public talks revealing the Dhamma. The villagers were very, very excited and felt deeply honored. So to show their great respect, for Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through their village and then cover it with fine cloth. In the forest just outside this village of Amaravati lived a young man 
who is blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, kindness, and much virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later time was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died just a few years before this story takes place, leaving him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that this young man, Sumedha, thought, my family has amassed much wealth. Neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day, I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I remain idle, he thought? No, I'll leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, and find the way. So it's said that he announced his intention to the king and gave all of his money to the poor and entered into the forest life of a hermit eating wild fruit, wearing clothes of bark, and letting his hair grow long and matted. He practiced energetically, whether sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. Within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara Buddha's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and the activity in the town. It's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with gold cloth? Venerable Sumedha, the workman replied, don't you know? The Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village. Well, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it to even hear the word Buddha. Rarely beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman with the road, picking a particularly swampy patch, a stretch of road on the low ground to fill. He worked with a heart and a mind filled with light and joy, and kept repeating over and over to himself, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed into the air. Buddha Dipankara was approaching the village. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha Dipankara, and a great golden light, soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one who is free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and then he lay down on top of it and loosening and spreading his long matted hair he made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud. Then he thought, Like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties, all of the danger, I'll never turn back. 
I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and to benefit all beings. The very next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot. And looking down at Sumedha, he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. In many mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men, and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. When he becomes a young man, he will see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of rice milk. And then with renewed energy and strength, He'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, became delirious with joy. My deepest, my deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha, he thought. The next moment, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta, and then continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength of purpose. And it's said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat, where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. Generosity. Generosity deepening as a quality of being. Generosity as a practice. We usually think of it as the practice of offering. But in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving. A process which very clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and the deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, of stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of resistance and greed. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, we receive the seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisatta Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced, cultivated and manifested generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter who we are. 
I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago. And my four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area with a very big and bright smile on his face and thrusts a bunch of bright yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China during my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with a Chinese family who were friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet. I'd learned that in China, the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of experiencing some degree of attachment, I decided to give my favorite bracelet uh, to this young woman for my birthday. Though a feeling a bit like a a one-handed giver (laughs) in my consideration of doing this, and then finally deciding to do so. By the time it actually came to give her the gift, It was uh, with both hands and with an open heart. And it was truly a joy at that point. Though, in the process of getting there, it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend of mine waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at IMS. And finally, all the conditions do come together. But just one week before the retreat begins, she calls to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked her if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. Just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes this small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of his car and gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart simply opens, and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. The child is then led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and the thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony a training, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. I'm attempting to feed my seven-month-old granddaughter, and she picks up a piece of banana and very delightedly pushes it into my mouth. A number of summers ago now, Forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area, not uh, very far from where I live in Taos, New Mexico. Hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs offers of housing, 
So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving. The needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. And I'm sure you remember the incredible outpouring of compassionate generosity on many levels after the September 11th tragedy and in response to the tsunami and in relationship to the hurricanes here in our southern states. The incredible outpouring of generosity offered in so many ways, people to people to people. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decide that you want to sit here at the forest refuge. And all of the conditions come together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself. And you receive the gift of your practice and the gift of the teachings, day by day, as your retreat unfolds. Just for a moment, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning, holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly down the road each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food in your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother, your father, or older sister or brother, and seeing this ritual, this offering, each morning, taking in the power of the generous heart, so clearly present in this daily practice. Taking in the joy and the genuine happiness quite apparent in the purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a natural part of your life. The Buddha taught, if you knew what I know about generosity, you wouldn't let one opportunity go by without sharing. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. In speaking to his sangha, he said, thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, the practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't easily available in this country, which, at least in part, is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life. We do have this practice here in retreat every now and then, fortunately. Nor do we regularly engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. 
and through that process reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. Rather, our culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations, and the accumulation of ideas, opinions, views, all of which support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations, material and otherwise, to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In the light of this quite pervasive and sticky conditioning, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things, underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. There's a a beautiful poem by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye that speaks to this. It was written in 1978 in uh, Colombia. And she calls it kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. We don't really have anything truly integrated into our culture that teaches us and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential emptiness of all accumulation. I think that as a culture, there's a deep, quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy. It's a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As our practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. 
in relationship to the everyday mundane world, what we think of as ours today could very well be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else next week or maybe even in this retreat, my, my spot in the meditation hall, my seat in the dining room, my walking path. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth, the inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the conditioning, the training of accumulating, and then fixating on and identifying with it all. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing really that can be held onto in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted and a gift that can forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving itself. Traditionally in the Buddhist teachings, there are three, three kinds of giving are spoken of. And I'd just like to look at these briefly. There's what we could call beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, uh, so to say, uh, still holding on to what we give. It's still mine. And it's how I first began uh, towards giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. In this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have. And afterward, we might even wonder, should we have given it all? The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving. And we give open-handedly with both hands, so to say. We share what we have because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. It's a clear giving. And then there's what can be called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if nothing remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves, in fact, to be only temporary caretakers of whatever has been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. In this, there's no giving. There's just the spaciousness that allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. And there's a wonderful metaphor for this. Uh, It's the moon shining in the sky while its image is reflected in every drop of water on the earth. The moon doesn't demand, if you open to me, I'll do you a favor and shine in you or shine on you. The moon just shines. The point is not to want to benefit anyone or to make them happy. There's no audience involved. 
There's no one to impress, no one to please, no one to show. There's no me, no you, no them. It's a matter of an open gift, complete generosity without the relative notions of giving and receiving. There's nothing to be held onto in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. And as you, we all well know, we don't always live with the purity and completeness of queenly and kingly generosity. I think that, at least in part, this is one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is quite important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves, to honor and respect our capacity of heart at any given point along the way, and not pretend anything to ourselves or to anyone else by imitating or acting out of some idealized image of what we might think of as a, a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's important to recognize, honor, and respect our limits along the way and come from a genuine place of heart. And sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, acting, for instance, with unconditional love and compassion and generosity, when in fact we might be acting out of fear of loss or disapproval or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or we might give from a place of trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear, actually perpetuates delusion. And it strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness, the closed heart of disconnection, which then causes continued suffering in oneself and possibly in others as well. For some people, it's very difficult to give. And there's a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people, people who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. Now, this sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves, and may not be able to ask for help or receive it graciously when it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically ill or distressed emotionally. So the practice is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as being particularly valuable, maybe like a potato or a turnip, and holding it in one hand and then passing it to the other hand and then passing it back and forth, hand to hand, One's hand, one's other hand, other hand, other hand, until it gets easy 
and you don't feel stupid or silly or embarrassed. And then there are the higher practices. If one's motivated, if one's inclined to continue the practice of generosity, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go of, relinquishing, offering everything, all of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits, preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. At one point, I did this practice. But instead of precious jewels, rice was the offering, which actually felt quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here. Without the paraphernalia, learning to give and learning to receive, letting go of control and receiving what's given, receiving each moment of life just as it is, whether pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and open heart and with a clear, focused, mindful attention, receiving the present moment just as it is, with gratitude, with appreciation, humility, and equanimity. With the unconditional, developing unconditional acceptance, we're learning to apply the wise and careful attention of mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, to any task we might be engaged in, to the experience of the breath from its birth all the way through to its death. Like the Bodhisattva Sumedha, who with such great dedication and open-heartedness practiced and learned, we too are learning to receive life fully. Be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is the path, our path, our path to the deepest sense of well-being and joy. We, too, are learning that this very life is our path to liberation, and that, in fact, Our liberation is intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. (laughs) In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help to help, we give to help and to free others. And we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows 
and flows within us and from us as we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. And I'm going to go just a little bit over time here. I want to close with a story, another story. About 26 years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. In those years, he would come once or twice a year to the area in Michigan where I lived to teach us. And one particular year, I invited him to uh, come and stay at my house, which was a very small, very old five-room house out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, just two of us, one of my sons and I, were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came. An old, well-used, smallish car pulled up in the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. And he's quite a big man, six foot three or four inches tall, and big-boned, and looked even bigger in his cowboy boots and his cowboy hat. And then it was like one of those uh, cars in the circus that pulls up into the center ring and the doors open and people just keep pouring out. And you're amazed at how many people can fit into such a tiny little car. So as we watched, seven people emerged from the car, all of Wallace's helpers and some members of his family. It turned out that there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. And my mind went, how will we all live and sleep in our tiny house? Well, the space seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet, uh, meet with and listen to Wallace as he talked and shared his earth wisdom. At night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the Ecology Center, usually until about 12.30 in the morning. And then it was time for dinner, the big dinner of the day, because there were no meals taken through the afternoon or the evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences, many of my habits, how I use the various spaces in my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, food preferences, and lots of other preferences. And Wallace and one of the other members of his family continually smoked cigarettes in my no-smoking house, (laughs) which we couldn't tell them not to do because they would never be inside the house. People, as I mentioned, slept all over the house. And the day would begin quite late in the morning because of the late-night sweat lodge ceremonies and the 1 a.m. dinner. Each afternoon, as I mentioned, the house was filled with people. Sometimes 15 or 20 people would come by to listen as Wallace shared uh, shared the teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweat lodge And there would be bowls of food at the door or left on the kitchen counter. And often a friend and I would be cooking up something for dinner at 12 or 1 in the morning. This was our main meal of the day. There was always plenty of food and always enough space. The last night of this 10 days, Wallace and uh, friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony, in our living room for my son and I. And so we all sat together in a circle, and each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then they gave my son and I beautiful treasures that they'd brought with them in gratitude for us sharing our space, our time, and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke. And he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space and time and energy, he said, it's an open-ended flow. 
There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. When everyone left the next day, in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all get back into the old car. It was kind of like watching a movie playing backwards. And then the two of us walked back into the house and stood there in amazement. The great expanse of the house, holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days. When we walked back inside after everyone had left, it seemed that our house had shrunk. And yet somehow, internally, both my son and I felt very expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And let's just sit together for a moment. And we'll close our evening together Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.